Hey guys, welcome to Let's Talk About Sex. I am Jamie and today's episode is a really, really important one for me actually. Um, now anyone that's listened to the podcast before knows that I have been speaking um, about my experience with sex addiction for many years. Uh, it was a few years ago, probably about three, three and a half years ago now that I was air quotes diagnosed with sex addiction and um, began working through it. Um, one of the very first episodes we ever released of the podcast was a chat between me and my therapist who did a bulk of the work um, with my sex addiction kind of journey. Um, so yeah, it's something that's really important to me and I talk about it quite a lot. So I had a few people in the kind of sex industry um, link me some tweets that were kind of loudly exclaiming to the masses, sex addiction is not real. Um, and you know, obviously that kind of hit me quite hard. I sort of had to look into it and, you know, figure out what, what these people were saying. Um, and one of those people was Silva Neves, who is the author of Compulsive Sexual Behaviors, a psychosexual treatment guide for clinicians. And he, um, agreed to come on the podcast and I kind of, I built up this like expectation of a fight. <laughs> I was like, this person's going to come in and they're going to tell me that all of my struggles aren't real and that sex addiction isn't real. It doesn't exist. Um, it's actually something else, which is a uh, compulsive sexual behavior disorder. And yeah, they're basically going to like completely invalidate all of my kind of progress and feelings towards something that is really important to me. And I think I've had to sort of, you know, combat for a long time. Um, and it wasn't that at all. Silver Neves was a beautiful and amazing and mind-opening guest to have on the podcast and I feel very lucky to have had that conversation with him. Um, he was very caring and very understanding and explained to me, you know, how sex addiction as an addiction isn't necessarily a real thing. Um, it, it, you know, it shouldn't be treated as an addiction. It should be treated as a compulsive sexual behavior disorder. Um, it was really mind-opening um, and I really hope that you find the conversation interesting um, because I certainly did. And yeah, shout out to Silver for being so uh, yeah nice and understanding in this conversation because, you know, having someone kind of come at you from a you know professional angle to tell you that your kind of struggles may not be framed in the way that you thought they were, um, but that's okay. And, you know, how we can kind of improve treatment and stuff like that going further. It, it can be quite scary, but um, I think, uh, yeah, I feel very lucky to have had this conversation with Silver. So yeah, I feel really excited to share this with you. And I hope you get something out of it. Uh, we also have the amazing Ruth Ramsey on to talk about delivery boy syndrome, which is something that you may not have heard of before. <laughs> it's a term that uh, you may not have uh, yeah heard spoke about before. But basically, I think it's it's a very uh, it's a very interesting take on the kind of uh, male masculine view on sex. Uh, something that's quite damaging, I think, um, especially you know in the terms of like toxic masculinity and you know how men kind of perceive sex. Anyway, yeah, super important episode, and I hope you enjoy it. If you did, let us know on the Instagram, on the Twitter, um, all that stuff. And yeah, hope to see you at the next one. Love you, bye. Hi, Silver. Hi, Jamie. How's it going? You all right? Oh, good, thank you. How are nice. you? 
very good very good very excited to have you on um yeah i was uh, i was linked to your book your uh, your book recently and um i was like oh my god i have to get i have to get silver on to come talk to me about this um <laughs> so yeah do you want to talk about this so your your recent book uh, compulsive sexual behaviors a psychosexual treatment guide for clinicians yes give us the give us the summary well, the summary is that um, the uh, ICD-11, so that's the International Classification for Disease, they have finally come up with um, a diagnostic criteria for this thing that people struggle with, which is their, their sexual behaviors that they find is out of control. And for a long time, the term that we used was sex addiction because there was nothing else and, and it, it sounded or looked or felt like an addiction so we use sex addiction but since the icd-11 came up with a diagnostic um, now we know as a field that it is not an addiction mm. so my book is basically updating the field and uh, informing people that hey we have been thinking about it as sex addiction we've been treating it as sex addiction and now we have to treat it differently because it is not an addiction so mm. in a nutshell that's the book yeah, nice. Okay, I like it. So, um, potential ambush here. The reason I was linked to your book is because I've been a very outspoken recovering sex addict, uh, as I've sort of given myself the label of um, for the last few years with the podcast. Um, so I had, yeah, some people link me at like, hey, hey, this guy's saying that sex addiction isn't real. You should go, <laughs> you should go attack him. Um, so uh, yeah, I really wanted to get you on to to kind of talk about that. Um, so yeah, so let's go a bit more into so. Um, I, I was looking at the, the DSM-5, so the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health, of Mental Disorders. Is that the same thing you just mentioned there? The well, that's of, different. Okay, fine. So, th those are the two main, the ICD-11 and the DSM-5 are the two main books that we use for diagnosis. Okay. And so the ICD-11 has come up now for the first time with compulsive sexual behavior disorder. The DSM-5 is still rejecting the notion of sex addiction mm. or even sexual compulsive sexual behavior at the moment. Yeah. So, and, and the reason for that is because there's just simply not enough evidence, scientific evidence that um, this condition exists. So the thing is, that's important, you know, like people like you, you're saying, or, or lots of people who, who, who might put the label on themselves to say, I'm a sex addict. When we say sex addiction doesn't exist, we don't actually try to um, minimize people's struggles, right? That's not what we're doing. What we're doing is that as clinicians, we want to put the right term on it so that we can find the right treatment. And uh, so actually we want to know more and more about people's struggles rather than just dismissing it as, oh, it's not real. Mm. And, and, and the, the thing is with, um, you know, when, when you are a clinician compared to members of the public, it's very important because whatever label you put on the, on a disorder will determine the treatment. Yeah. And, and a lot of the time, if you use an addiction treatment, which is a very, very specific treatment, um, and you use it for the wrong disorder, you can actually do more damage than doing good for, for, mm. that, for those particular people. So, you know, addiction treatment, great uh, outcome for drugs and alcohol, um, but not so for sex, unfortunately. And a lot of people have been struggling with getting on with an addiction treatment, trying to um, resolve their problems with their sexual behaviors. Yeah. So that's why the ICD-11 was really welcome because it's like, okay, now it opens the doors to, to working differently with it. And the ICD-11 has clearly said that uh, compulsive sexual behavior disorder is not an addiction problem. Mm. It's an impulse control, which is very, very different. So with impulse control, it means that we don't 
you know, the, the typical addiction treatment is to stop the behaviors first and then, and then, you know, finding out what, what is left. But if you do that with sex, there's a great potential for shaming people, shaming people yeah. about their sexual arousal, their sexual fantasies, their sexual behaviors without understanding it properly first. So yeah, totally. a sexological, you really need a sexological assessment um, yeah. for compulsive sexual behaviors, which, which sex addiction treatment doesn't do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. Silver, you've completely diffused me there. Now I'll be honest with you, right? When I was first linked to the tweets that you put out talking about this, I was really angry really, really angry because, um, you know, you had in big capital letters, you know, sex addiction is not a thing. And it did feel like you were minimizing those struggles, right? What you've just said there has completely calmed me down. So yeah, well done. <laughs> but I came yeah. into this like ready for a fight because yeah, um, I get the, you know, I read, I read, um, into, into your book. I've not read the actual book yet, but I did a lot of research, went through your website and stuff. And I realized that, yeah, what you were actually saying is that, you know, um, sex addiction isn't real in the clinical sense, right? So the word addiction has a whole load of stuff with it. You know, there's, the, it comes with like, there's a lot of chemicals involved with that. You know, is the, is the thing, you know, drugs, alcohol, or sex, is it actually addictive? That is a medical term, right? Hmm. Um, and, and yeah, this, this latest research is saying, no, it's not um, for sex anyway. So um, yeah, that's the kind of distinction that you're making there. And yeah, the, I kind of, I, I think, and I think the reason why people link them to me is because, yeah, when you say sex addiction is not real, you know, in a tweet, I, I now know after reading into it, I know what you mean, you know, it's clinically not real. Um, but I, yeah, I did feel minimized in that. I felt like, yeah, kind of, well, I've been identifying as a recovering sex addict for, you know, mm. however many years. Um, and, uh, yeah, I kind of got the point you were making, but, uh, it felt sort of almost, almost clickbaity, um, how you're saying it. But. And I, th I think also a lot of people, uh, get angry about those things because, um, the, the sex addiction then becomes an identity and it's yeah. part of the, uh, sex addiction world. And part of the 12 step sex addiction anonymous uh, movement is for people. They want people to identify with it because they want people to keep in, in that movement and they want mm. people to keep feeling like they are somehow defective. And, and so when people start to, have it as an identity and somebody else says, Oh, it's not a thing. Of course, people are going to get angry yeah. because, yeah. because they are going to feel that their identity is attacked. Yeah. And also the progress they've made, you know, by identifying as that they've made progress, you know, hopefully we hope they've made progress. I've made a lot of progress. So yeah, when you attack the identity, you're also attacking the progress they've made with that, you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yes. And you know, I, I never say that the 12 step programs are not helpful for people. Of course it is helpful for people. Mm. Uh, and lots of people are saying it's helpful. So, so that's great. But actually what we are not hearing is that there are also very, very many people that have said that the 12 step sex addicts anonymous have harmed them yeah and those people they don't speak up because they are shamed by it yeah sure so so and and i come from that that other point of view to say hey actually it also harms you know if you if you don't mm. take great care of it yeah and and people and, and a lot of people that say um that the 12 step program has helped they also come to me sometimes and it says well it's helped me stop a behavior because that's what 12 steps do yeah, yeah that's what addiction oriented mind do but what it doesn't do is help is how can i thrive in my sexuality and mm. that's the bit that it doesn't do a lot of people say i know what not to do but i still don't know even after years in 12-step programs i still don't know what to do yeah, yeah. and and people can freeze or, or like feel really awkward in sexual situations because they just don't know what to do yeah. and they keep thinking oh is my sponsor gonna agree or not agree yeah. with what i'm doing and mm. that's for me for me as a clinician is not a good enough outcome. Yeah, no, 
totally agree yeah I, it, is, it is an interesting balancing act and I think I'm lucky with my my treatment I bounced between four different therapists um, who all had quite differing you know methods um, I tried the 12 step um, it did me it did me some good um, I tried more um, like uh, abstinence stuff um, it was very short-lived uh, but I know that works for some but yeah the, the overarching thing and the the therapist I have now um, Heather Mangold through better help um, she's been actually helping me with this as well she she has some things to say on it um she uh yeah the big thing with that was we have to you know with drugs and alcohol it's about how do we work towards you never doing these things again and you know how does your life look without ever drinking again or ever doing drugs again obviously you can't do that with sex it's yeah it's a different process it's how do you get down to a level where you're healthy um you have a healthy relationship to sex and that is the number one question i get when i talk about sex addiction um people will ask me you know to the point of like you know getting with um people on dating apps and they and they know about it they'll ask me are you allowed to do this you know are you allowed to have sex because that's how we see addiction you're right mm. it's, it's a black and white thing right um, yes yeah yes. so for, for those for those that might not know could you sort of summarize the difference between uh like addiction therapy and other methods that sh you know you feel like should be used here mm -hmm. yeah well the the uh, if, if you look at it from what the icd-11 says which is an impulse control problem yeah then then it's closer to an OCD treatment rather than an addiction treatment. So, and that's a very, very different type of treatment because right. the, the addiction uh, is going to try to teach you, uh, the addiction in terms of sex addiction is going to try to teach you to be erotically avoidant because addiction thinking says, be careful of your sexual fantasies, be careful of your sexual arousal because that is the gateway to uh, unwanted behaviors. With the impulse control um, thinking, it's actually the opposite. We say you have to face your erotic. You have to know what it is very, very clearly, explore your erotic mind fully. And so basically it's being erotically aware rather than erotically avoidant. And as you are erotically aware, you, you face your erotic and you learn emotional regulation as you face your erotic. And then you can integrate it back into a functioning life and that's what works and i and that's what i do in in my session certainly and that's what works and the thing it works and the reason why it works and and also why it works long term is because there's no deprivation and there's no ideas of stopping actually but it's about reintegrating it in people's in people's life in a way that's functional and which means that then once they actually really know their erotic really well because most people with con with behaviors that are out of control is because they're not aware of what they're doing and they're not aware of the desires and the needs. Mm. Once they're aware, they can understand it, they integrate it in their lives. And then it's effortless. The, the progress is effortless because it's not going to be for the rest of their lives to be careful if there is a picture of a, somebody in a bikini in a shop or, you know, a sexual fantasies that comes randomly in, in your mind yeah. or an advert that is sexy. You know, you don't have to be afraid of those things mm. um, with, with impulse control treatment. Yeah, because you learn to sit with it. That's interesting, actually. Yeah. That does bring me back to an exercise that my counsellor had uh, me do in the early stages. It was basically... Um, to if if i'm like horny in the night to sit with it instead of addressing it instead of being like oh i'm turned on so i should masturbate um and i'd obviously trained myself for years as i think a lot of people do right a lot of people do that if, if you're turned on it means you should have a wank and then you're good right um, and yeah it was to sit to sit with it and really like just be mindful of how you're feeling but you don't have to address it and it hurt like painfully hurt in my head <laughs> like if there was like yeah. mental strain for it um which shows you that, yeah there's there is this big kind of yeah impulse to uh 
to do it. Yeah. Have you, um, have you, have you ever experienced anything like that yourself in your personal life? Not in my personal life, no. Um, no. I, I've not, I don't have a history of it personally. Mm. I don't have any kind of loved one who have a, a history of it. Okay. I have seen many, many, many clients who have sure, had it. Yeah. In some ways, it gives me a different perspective to not have a personal history. Yeah. A, lot of, yeah. a lot of people that are sex addiction therapists, they often become one because of their personal history. And I think that sometimes it gets them to be a bit biased about mm. how they view it and how they see it. And some of the shame they might have felt in the past, they might project that on to their clients yeah. and I think sometimes we have to be careful uh, to work with issues that are a bit too close to ourselves and especially if somebody has a, a sex addiction treatment or a 12-step treatment that worked really well for them it doesn't mean that it's going to be working for their clients either sure. and sometimes so sometimes I have an issue with this kind of like one 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 size fits all approach mm. um, and you know the sex addiction therapist kind of automatically refer the clients to 12-step programs and you know I very much disagree with that Mm. I also find that another thing that I find really disturbing is that in sex addiction treatment, and I'm not talking just about 12-step, I'm also talking about textbooks on sex addiction, they are often really religious. And even though they say, mm -hmm. oh, no, we're not religious at all, you know, <laughs> they, they, in the books, it's in black and white. They talk about the power of prayer. Right. And yeah. I'm thinking, you know, this is kind of like a bit uncomfortable for me because it's yeah. not very far away from prayer the gay away. You know, yeah, yeah. and and you know we don't use prayers for OCD. We don't use prayers for eating disorders or for any other psychological problems. Why do we use it for sex addiction? And I think I think there is a religious agenda behind the the experts, um, you know, so called experts on on positive sexual behaviors. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to illustrate the air quotes you were doing there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a scary link between uh, addiction. And yeah, uh, faith-based therapy as well. I think, which yeah, we won't get into now. But uh, I'm, with <laughs> you. I'm with you there. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so um, I want to talk about the shame side of things um, because yeah, what I find so this this is coming from my kind of personal take on you know my initial reaction to reading to reading your stuff. Um, so I this might be because I've spent the last two years talking as publicly as I can about sex addiction and identify as a sex addict and the words sex addict come with a fair amount of shame but they're quite um they're quite known in pop culture right a few celebrities have you know spoken up about it everyone I spoke to seemed to have some you know shitty ex-boyfriend who's cheated on them and said they were a sex addict so the term sex, sex addict comes up and there was a little bit of shame with it that I kind of took on and I feel like I'm owning now um and I think that talking about it is is important um with uh so the kind of rebranding let's call it of uh well sorry the the correction it's actually uh compulsive sexual behavior disorder um i feel like yeah calling it a disorder for me feels more shameful you know disorder <laughs> sounds like a broken thing doesn't it you know something that needs to be fixed maybe some people feel like bad addiction maybe i'm biased i don't know yeah i mean that's interesting you say that because addiction the actual word addiction is a disease word right and, okay. and it's an illness word mm. and the the language of sex addiction is that people are defective you know they, they call right. it a 
character defect. That mm. is, for me, very shameful. Mm. Um, the disorder with ICD-11, they had to, uh, if you look at the criteria of the disorder, it's actually very, very hard to meet the disorder criteria. It's literally less than 1% of the population. Right. So, uh, actually, but, but the, the, so the good thing about the ICD-11 is that with that, you can undiagnose more people than you would diagnose people. So people that come into your session and they self-diagnose, oh, I've got sex addiction, I did this online, this online questionnaire, and the computer tells me I'm a sex addict, so yeah. here I am. You know, you look at, you, you make an assessment, and most of the time you will undiagnose them of a disorder. Really? Both, both, both of an addiction disorder, but also compulsive sexual behavior. Oh, okay. But you can still use the uh, the criteria of compulsive sexual behavior to say, you know what, you're not in on the disorder level, but you do have some problems with right. compulsivity. And mm. problems is different from disorder. And but I agree with you. A CSBD, you know, compulsive sexual behavior disorder can be can be quite shameful, uh, j but just as much as addiction language can be shameful. Um, however, most of my clients, um, there are people that have problems with compulsivity, not 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 a disorder. Mm, interesting. Okay, yeah. Okay, so it sounds like because I've spent so much time loading this label onto me, I'm able yeah. to not well, feel think, shame about it. That's right. And I think I think that there's a difference between. Um, what, what, I think what you're talking about is that there's a difference between the uh, the clinical language and the popular language, because in the popular language, addiction is not a disease word so much. It's a word that's used all the time. Yeah. Even I, I myself, you know, when I'm not a therapist, when I'm you know with friends, I call myself a coffee addict. I call yeah. myself a you know a cheese addict. I love cheese, yeah. right? So, but of course, I use that word as a popular word. It's not the it's not a disease word, mm. and, and and people use the word sex addict the, the same way as I use coffee addict. And I don't have any problem people saying that about themselves. It's fine, whatever. Yeah. But the thing is that when you start to use that word and then you put it in, put it in a clinical uh, setting, that's when you can really cause problem and shame people very much. Yeah, sure. See, that's the thing as well. Like, I, I really believe in the power of like colloquialism and you know ha having words that are just said in casual conversation. If if a word makes it through into pop culture, like addict. I think that's quite a powerful tool for spreading awareness. That's kind of, I think that's where you and I are going to rub up against each other is that I, I, I like that sex addiction comes with connotations because when you say it, it feels like you've kind of, you know, you've dropped a big word in. And, you know, if you say I am a sex addict, that has a lot of connotations because people are coming to it with, you know, prior knowledge and prior, you know, uh, you know, presumptions and stuff. Um, so yeah, it's interesting because I completely understand where you're coming from. And I agree, you know, there's, there's clearly a clinical side to it. Um, and the word addiction doesn't fit that. Um, and I, I, you know, you are the professional here and I get it, but, um, in terms of like what I'm trying to do with spreading the word and about it. I yeah. still feel like I want to use the term. Because that's fine. But you, you, you don't have to change it. And yes, right. I mean, so, you know, sex addiction is kind of easier and, and sexier than to say compulsive sexual behavior. <laughs> <laughs> I am somebody with compulsive sexual behavior. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. I'm a sex addict is easier to say. But yeah. I think I agree with you also that that word, I'm a sex addict or sex addiction is a buzzword. Yeah. And it's a word that's used a lot. And so it, 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 we can definitely use it to spread the awareness. I don't have a problem. I think it's great that people can have a word that they can identify to spread awareness because we need more awareness of this. Yeah. But when it comes to 
uh, a clinical setting, when you seek treatment, I think what's important for people to know is that the 12-step program and the addiction treatment is not the endorsed one, and which means mm -hmm. that even though it can be helpful, it can also be harmful. And, and that in terms of treatment, it's best to use a treatment that is actually clinically endorsed. It's like you're not going to go to your doctor and think that you want chemotherapy because you have a cough. Right. right. You want first to know what the cough is about. Right. Yeah. If it's lungs cancer, yeah, great. Have chemotherapy. Yeah. But if it's not, don't have that. It can be harmful. Right. Right. Okay. I like that analogy. Yeah. So if um, if someone feels like they may be um, dealing with this, um, whether they want to call it addiction or disorder or whatever, they feel like they have these compulsions. Uh, what What do you think they should do? I think it's important that they go and see a professional because um, uh, if you just read books or you go online, you're going to get a lot of misinformation. Mm -hmm. It's best to see a professional and one that is trained in contemporary sexology, not right. just sex addiction, because a lot of people are trained in sex addiction, but they don't actually have the knowledge of contemporary sexology. So there's got to be someone with that. And, and it, I think I, it's important that people feel the right to interview the therapist, you know, when they meet somebody yeah. to not just say, Oh, I'm going to trust them because they say they're an expert in this to, to, to interview them and to ask them, what are your views about uh, sex addiction and compulsive sexual behaviors? And if your therapist is saying a very black and white answer, then be, beware basically is what I'm okay. saying. Interesting. Interesting. I've actually been in that exact scenario. Yeah. So I, yeah, I've been through, I'm, I'm a big advocate for um, changing therapists. I think you should jump between therapists and you should keep going until you find one that you love. Right. I agree. And they can, and they can change between topics, right? I had a great anger management therapist and then I didn't need help with that anymore. So I changed to a, you know, sex, sex, sorry, sex addiction stuff. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I tried four different ones and some of them had really impressive CVs. They'd worked with really, you know, in, in, impressive people. They'd written papers, but it was just a really horrible match. And, right. and I'm with my current counselor. I have been for two years. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big supporter of that, jumping between. Yeah, you're Fantastic. right. It's an interview, you know, you, you're, <laughs> it is, you know, it's the client you know, kind of set up. So um, yeah, you should be interviewing them. Yes. Um, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of clients report that their therapists say, okay, so I'm, I'm an expert in sex addiction. And one thing you have to do is to go to a trusted program to support your treatment, right. right? And if that becomes a condition, I say beware, because it means that they are actually not really understanding it from very broadly. They're just only going for one size fits all. And that's a problem. Mm, interesting. Okay, cool. Thank you. That was amazing. I was really scared we were going to have an argument there. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. That, that's the thing. What I love is like sometimes it's good to disagree. You know, I'm yeah. not. I'm yeah. not out there to say you've got to agree with me. You've got to. You've got to do as I say. You know, I, I'm not into that at all because I think every single client I've met with compulsive sexual behavior, they are they've all been different with different stories, and I've taken slightly different approach with it, each mm. of them because you know people are people. It's, they're not just a thing uh, like they're not a disorder or a problem they are people with different stories and every um compulsive sexual behavior the way that it starts you know the seed of it is different for for every for every person so i work very much with people and with colleagues is the same same things you know some people agree with me some people disagree with me i don't think you know if you read my book i don't think i'm saying something uh, really quite innovative it, it it is innovative because most people work with a sex addiction model but actually I'm not reinventing the wheel. I'm actually using classic old-fashioned psychotherapy knowledge and contemporary sexology knowledge. That's all. So yeah. I'm not saying something that's out there. And <laughs> it's just it's just science science basically. Right. Yeah, sure. 
Okay, cool. So yeah, remind us the name of the book and where people can find you and it. <laughs> it's Compulsive Sexual Behavior, a Psychosexual Treatment Guide for uh, Clinicians. And it's published by Ratledge. So you can find it on the Ratledge website or also on Amazon and uh, places like that. Yeah. And um, my website, my clinic website is silvernevis.co.uk. But if you want some information on sexology and compulsive sexual behavior, I've got another website that's uh, called sexpositivityuk.com. And uh, that has uh, lots of information and, and, and the resource page and also where to find a therapist that works uh, with sex positivity and non-addiction. So mm -hmm. that's a, it's, it's a good resource, resource places for people wanting help. Amazing. There you go. Thanks. You're welcome. Good to see you and, and thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Hello, everyone. It's me, Jamie, and I've got an important announcement to make. All right. This podcast is now sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, anyone who's been listening to the podcast for the last however long it's been knows that I've been shouting about this company for years, since day one. One of our first episodes was a counselling session with me and my counsellor from BetterHelp, um, and I've been on it for years now probably like coming up to like four years i think maybe five years i've been on it um getting counseling um on a weekly basis and i love it um and yeah it's really it's really nice it's a bit like tinder for therapists you, you put in like your problems <laughs> the things that you want to talk to someone about and then it comes up with all these different counselors who um specialize in that area and you can kind of read a little bio and like read their reviews and stuff and pick which ones for you that's really cool i've gone through like probably probably about 14 counselors in my time on better help for me living in London especially um, I think it's the same for like most major cities out there therapy in person therapy is really expensive um, this gives you that but you know at the kind of whenever you want to do it it's all online and you can do like you know video voice or text chat um, and it's way cheaper than seeing someone in person so um, yeah it's actual proper like therapy uh, online securely online um, yeah, I send messages at all, at all points in, in the day and night um, it's pretty good for that you can also um, mark them as urgent, which is quite nice. I think a lot of people, when they think about online counselling, they kind of think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, it's like a bit distanced, like you're not completely like fully in touch with your counsellor. But um, I think, you know, with it being online, you're more in touch with them and you can mark messages as urgent if you want like a, a quicker response. So they are sponsoring this podcast now, which is cool, which means we have a discount link. Um, you get 10% off if you go to betterhelp.com forward slash let's talk about sex Jamie there's a link in the bio and yeah love you bye hey Ruth hey Matt yes not Jamie I haven't taken over and again it's my guest host spot on let's talk about sex Jamie so I'm going to change that to let's talk about sex Matt today at least everyone if you let me off that'd be nice welcome back thanks for joining us today we have the fantastic Ruth Ramsey with us welcome to the show Ruth hello there and you are a sex life coach. I'm curious, what is the most common question you get? The most common issue that clients tend to come to me with is that they want their sex life to be better, but they don't know what that actually means for them. So I know that I want more than this, but I don't know what I want. Help. Because <laughs> if we don't know what we want, then we don't have something to work towards mm. so yeah people want help unpicking what actually is going to work for them sexually and who they are as a sexual being mm. so what are your first steps into figuring that out i mean good question i i, I want mm. a better sex life and i'm doing that by bumping my head in just sort of you know for example i only recently um discovered uh well i've tried to 
learn about anal play, for example, because I know that mm. there is a G spot or P spot or whatever it's called for men in the back there somewhere. And mm -hmm. I, I've never really had any experiences with that. Well, you've, you've given me a great lead in there in a way, because I generally tend to advise people to try viewing sex as a hobby. So I don't mean to make it not serious. I don't mean to not recognize um, the importance of it, the seriousness of it to some people, the emotional depth of it for some people and the meaning for some people. But I say, look, if you think of it as a hobby, then you will be more likely to be looking out for new technologies, new practices, what are other people doing, what's out there that I can try. And so, as you've just said, um, anal, hmm, I've heard that might be good. Let's try it. You don't need to have had a burning desire since mm. a teen to try anal play in order to investigate anal play. Think of sex mm. as a hobby, and then suddenly everything is of interest. Just to learn more about it, maybe to try it, maybe not if you decide it's not for you, but approaching it in a more sort of curious and slightly lighthearted kind of way. What's, mm. what's out there that I could try? But the main problem at the start of this journey is that we are so conditioned by culture, media and upbringing into what a sexual woman, what a sexual man should be like. Um, I think there's more flexibility and more options to a degree presented to people of other genders, mm. but certainly to heterosexual men and women, we have these sort of fixed ideas of how they should be sexually. And when that doesn't fit in with our actual core erotic self, then it's obviously a very discordant place to be and a very confusing place to be as well, and a place that can hold a lot of shame mm. if your erotic desires don't match with what you've been told is right mm. for your gender identity. Yeah, in my experience with that is, um, you know, we are what say under under twenty when we start having sex, right? And up until that point, you know, sex in terms of my education, um, not about sex ed, but in terms of what sex meant, was it, it's like mm. holding its base, it's bases, right? So base one is what like holding hands, or you know, base two is is kissing, isn't it, with tongue? Base three is mm. like yeah, fingering, and then that, and obviously when you're a, when you're a young boy, all you're taught 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 sorry, all you're told is that uh, fingering is is literally I have to do a diagram, it is just this, right? <laughs> not no, no mm. the clitoris doesn't exist. You never knew what that. Mm. There's no hood. There's no understanding about labia or anything. It's just like fingers in because the fourth base is penis in now i've had mm. sex now that is sex to me right and then i definitely can relate in that anything additional to that is like wow that's you're you're one of them you know you're like erotic mm. and wild and crazy and and i definitely in my sort of um, adolescence sex plateaued for me i, I mentioned this before how orgasms just because you know sex was sex and of course that could be said about who i was with and what i was doing and there's a mental game to it and things um but i sex for me was about making her come Mm. which I know is not what I should call it, but I'm going to say that mm. this is, I've, I've been that, uh, you know, um, mm. ignorant. So sex is about making her come. So all I was doing was trying to please her. And in the process, I would come along the way, right? I was mm. not really focusing on my own pleasure. So therefore orgasms for me were just like part of having sex, but they weren't actually my reward or whatever they're meant to be. Um, mm. Is that, is that, is that common? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll just go back to something you said a moment ago about learning that fingering just meant just meant in and out. And you said, as a boy, I was taught. But yeah. girls are taught that as well. 
we're told, you know, school sex education is penis in vagina. The male sex organ is the penis. The female sex organ organ is the vagina. Um, and so I can certainly relate as a, as a teen. And I, I've spoken to a lot of women um, who thought that masturbation was just in and out of the vagina and are thinking, wow. hmm, well, that doesn't feel that good. But meanwhile, they're off humping their soft toys and pillows and stuff like that. Because <laughs> this feels great. I don't know what's going on here, but this feels great. <laughs> and of course, that's stimulating the clitoris and that whole area, which is generally what women need. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's both genders, all genders that need much, much better sex education. Um, but then what you've just said about being so as a as a young man being so focused on the woman's pleasure i think that's a delicate balance that needs to be struck because on the one hand guys hear all the time that they need to focus more on the woman's pleasure but there is mm. the risk that they then lose touch with their pleasure sure. to such a degree that it's very detrimental and this is something um called delivery boy syndrome Delivery boy. Delivery syndrome. boy syndrome. <laughs> I'm so, so a delivery boy. <laughs> mm -hmm. What is delivery boy syndrome? Break it down for me. Where the partner concerned doesn't have to be a man, but generally mm. the partner concerned is so focused on their partner's pleasure, on, I would say, ideally helping their partner achieve orgasm. But people, guys will often have in their heads, I must make her come. Mm. thinking this is something that I am doing to her and I need to do it right and I do need to do it for long enough um, that it happens. I will make her come and that's what this encounter is about. Mm. But through being so focused on that, they lose touch with their own pleasure. Mm. So it might be that after making her come, um, they either can't get an erection or that they can't orgasm. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a few things around that to explore um, or that they ejaculate but don't orgasm so they have just the physical reaction of ejaculation but they don't mm. actually experience the pleasure of orgasm mm. but they might be thinking oh but she came so that was a successful sexual experience sure um, but in terms of well in terms of the relationship overall say if this is in a relationship context mm. I'm sure if their partner were asked, what's, what's the, how would you describe successful, happy sex with your partner? They would say, oh, we both have a great time. Mm. They might not, might not realize that their partner is ejaculating, not orgasming, for example. Or it might be that their partner's faking it, which men can do as well as women. Um, but for someone in this kind of situation, there's generally two two things that can be done or two things to be considered. So with guys in their 20s and into 30s, there's not enough awareness of delayed ejaculation. Yeah. You see all over the place stuff about premature ejaculation. Um, that seems to be the biggest concern. But actually delayed ejaculation or not being able to come at all isn't uncommon. I think it's around 10% of guys experience this in their 20s. Yeah. I never heard of it. I never knew it existed. Never, right? No. Yeah. And until yeah. until Jamie and I, I'm sure, obviously, this is his podcast. He won't mind me saying yeah. this because he said it before. He has that. He has an issue. Well, well mm -hmm. he has a problem with delayed ejaculation. And I never knew mm -hmm. that existed. I, I'm, if anything, I'm like, you're lucky boy. 
you know, I'm, I'm there uh, trying to hold back as hard as I can. I definitely have a problem with, and mm. uh, it's not a problem all the time, but it can be at sometimes um, with uh, premature mm. ejaculation. I totally have that problem. I'm definitely battling on finding ways to delay it and, and mix things up. So I'm changing mm. positions. So I'm just delay, buying myself another minute and another minute to try and get her there because they, you know, like, I'm like, the second I get her there, I can just go. So then mm. we're all good. I'm delivery boy syndrome. I'm there just sort of, I, I am a delivery boy. I love that terminology. <laughs> The next time you have an actual delivery boy deliver something to your house, you're going <laughs> to look at him in a different way. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to look at him and go, dude, yeah. think, think about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take care of yourself next time. So um, if you're curious to learn more, go ahead go, well, go and check out Ruth Ramsey at Instagram. Do you have a, is it .com as well, Ruth Ramsey? Can we go check you out there? Um, it's at Ruth Ramsey underscore on Instagram. Have we got time just for me to very quickly make two points? Please. Yeah, yeah. So in, if you're experiencing delivery boy syndrome, um, one situation in which this can come about, uh, particularly with younger guys, is if when you masturbate, you use quite a tight grip. Mm -hmm. um, and if you don't use lube, so quite a tight, rough grip. And then you're having sex with your girlfriend. Um, you've supported her in having an orgasm, <laughs> is how I'd like you to think of it. You haven't made and a then, You've supported yep, her in having an orgasm. Yes. And then you go into penetrative sex as the way to make you come. You've got probably... a She's just post-orgasm. Orgasm. A wet, relaxed vagina is not giving you the same kind of stimulation as you're used to mm. when you're masturbating with your hand. Mm. And so then you're thinking, why isn't this working for me? Why isn't this getting me off? That could be why. So look at um, A, stimulation other than just penetration. So can she use her hand on you afterwards? The other thing to do is when you're masturbating, Use lube, use a looser grip, acclimatize yourself to stimulation that's more similar to a happy post-orgasmic vagina. And then the quickly, the other thing is ask yourself, do you genuinely feel worthy of orgasmic pleasure? Do you think you deserve the same amount of pleasure you're trying to give her? Do you deserve that yourself? And if you find the answer is, well, actually... No, then you need to go and explore why that is, because that mm. will also be stopping you having the mind blowing orgasm that you deserve and that you've just given her. Ruth, that is golden advice. I think you've, you've given me something to think about on that second point there um, mm. about, uh, wow, Ruth, uh, on that bombshell. Thanks for joining us. So let's talk about sex, JB. Thank you for having me. all right that's all we have time for today thank you so much for listening it really really means a lot to me that you have gone out your way to come and listen to me talk to people about their sex stories <laughs> um if you like what we're doing go check us a follow on let's talk about sex jamie on instagram uh tell your friends about us leave a review on itunes all that stuff that people with podcasts say at the end basically um yeah really means a lot that you listen and hope to see you next week Love you, bye.